0: The Christmas Train, written by David Baldacci, read by Tim Matheson, featuring a bonus story waiting for Santa, read by Brad Negbar. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by chapter at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by Visibility Limited formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact Visibility on Country Code plus 61, area code 08, 9311 8202, or by email library at visibility.com.au Tom Langdon was a journalist, a globe-trotting one, because it was in his blood to roam widely. Where others saw only instability and fear in life, Tom felt graced by an embracing independence. He'd spent the bulk of his career in foreign lands, covering wars, insurrections, famines, pestilence, virtually every earthly despair. His goal had been relatively simple. He had wanted to change the world by calling attention to its wrongs. And he did love adventure. However, after chronicling all these horrific events and still seeing the conditions of humanity steadily worsen, he'd returned to America filled with disappointment. Seeking an antidote to his melancholy, he'd started writing drearily light stories for ladies' magazines, home decorating journals, garden digests, and the like. However, after memorializing the wonders of compost and the miracle that was do-it-yourself wood flooring, he wasn't exactly fulfilled. It was nearing Christmas, and Tom's most pressing dilemma was getting from the East Coast to Los Angeles for the holidays. He had an age-old motivation for the journey. In L.A. was his girlfriend, Lelia Gibson. She'd started out as a movie actress, but after years of appearing in third-rate horror films, she'd begun doing voiceover work. Now, instead of being cinematically butchered for her daily bread, she supplied the character voices for a variety of enormously popular Saturday morning cartoons. In the children's television industry, it was accepted that no one belted out the voices of goofy woodland creatures with greater flair and versatility than golden-piped Lelia Gibson. As proof, she had a shelf full of awards, an outrageously large income, and a healthy share of syndication rights. Tom and Lelia had hit it off on an overnight flight from Southeast Asia to the States. At first, he thought it might have been all the liquor they drank, But when that buzz burned off a couple hours out of L.A., she was still beautiful and interesting, if a little ditzy and eccentric, and she still seemed attracted to him. He stayed over in California, and they got to know each other even better. She visited him on the East Coast, and they'd been a comfortable, if informal, bi-coastal item ever since. It might seem strange that a successful Hollywood lady would go for a nomadic gent who ran through passports like water could spout off funny if lewd phrases in 30 languages and never would be financially secure. Yet Lelia had tired of the men in her circle. As she diplomatically explained it once, they were complete and total lying scum and unreliable to boot. Tom was a newsman, she said, so at least he occasionally dealt with the truth. She also loved his rugged good looks. He took that to mean the deep lines etched on his face from reporting in windswept desert climates with bullets flying. In fact, his face was more often than not down in the sand in observance of local safety regulations. She listened with rapt attention to Tom's tales of covering major stories around the globe. For his part, he observed with admiration the professional way Lelia went about her loony voice career. And they didn't have to live together year-round, a decided advantage, Tom believed, over the complex hurdles facing couples who actually cohabitated. He'd been briefly married, but had never had kids. Today, his ex-wife wouldn't accept a collect call from him if he were hemorrhaging to death on the street. He was 41 and had just lost his mother to a stroke. His father had been dead for several years. Being an only child, he was truly alone now and that had made him introspective. Half his time on earth was gone, and all he had to show for it was a failed marriage, no offspring, an informal alliance with a California voiceover queen, a truckload of newsprint, and some awards. By any reasonable measure, it was a miserable excuse for an existence. He'd had an opportunity for a wonderful life with another woman, but the relationship had inexplicably fallen apart. He now fully understood that not marrying Eleanor Carter would forever stand as the major mistake of his life. Yet, ever the man of action and wanderlust upon him once more, Tom was taking the train to L.A. for Christmas. Why the train, one might ask, when there were perfectly good flights that would get him there in a fraction of the time? Well, a guy can only take so many of those airport security search wands venturing into sacrosanct places or requests to drop trousers in front of strangers, or ransacking of carry-on bags before blowing a big one. The fact was, he'd blown a big one at LaGuardia Airport. Not merely a nuclear meltdown, his detonation resembled something closer to the utter destruction of Pompeii. He'd just flown in from Italy after researching yet another bit of fluff, this time on winemaking, and imbibing more of the subject matter than he probably should have to get through the ordeal of crash learning, soil diversification, and vine rot. As a result, he was tired, cranky, and hungover. He'd slept for three hours at a friend's apartment in New York before heading to the airport to catch a flight to Texas. He'd been given an assignment to write about teen beauty pageants there, which he'd accepted because he enjoyed blood sports as much as the next person. At the security gate at LaGuardia, the search wand had smacked delicate things of Tom's person that it really had no business engaging, socially or otherwise. Meanwhile, another security person managed to dump every single thing from Tom's bag onto the conveyor belt. He watched helplessly as very personal possessions rolled by in front of suddenly interested strangers. To put a fine finish on this very special moment, he was then informed that a major warning flag had been raised regarding his ID, his hair color, his clothing choice, or the size of his nose. They were never really clear on that, actually. Thus, instead of flying to Dallas, he'd be enjoying the company of a host of FBI, DEA, CIA, and NYPD personnel for an unspecified period of time. The phrase 5 to 10 was even bandied about. Well, that, coupled with his exploited physical parts, was his absolute limit. So, the lava poured forth. Langdon was six feet two and carried about 220 pounds of fairly hard muscle, and real honest-to-God steam was coming out his ears. His eruption involved language he ordinarily wouldn't use within four miles of any church, as he launched himself at the security team, grabbed their infamous search wand, and snapped it right in half. He wasn't proud of his violent act that day, although the rousing cheers from some of the other passengers who had heard and seen what had happened to him did manage to lift his spirits a bit. Thankfully, the magistrate Tom appeared before had recently endured airport security of an extremely overzealous nature, and when he gave his testimony, she and Tom shared a knowing look. Also, the red flag raised at the security gate had been, shockingly, a mistake. Thus, Tom only received a stern warning, with instructions to enroll in anger management classes, which he planned to do as soon as his uncontrollable urge to maim the fellow with the search wand subsided. However, the other consequence of the blow-up was that he'd been banned from placing his miserable person on any air carrier that flew within the continental United States for the next two years. He hadn't thought they could do that, But then he was shown the appropriate statutory power in the microscopic print of the airline's legal manifesto under the equally tiny section titled Lost Luggage Liability Limit, $5. And that's when he had his epiphany. Being unable to fly, his usual and necessary way of traveling, was an omen. It had to be a sign of something divine, something important. Thus, he was going to take the train to L.A., He was going to write a story about it, traveling by rail from sea to shining sea during the Christmas season. He had a grand motivation beyond spending the holiday with Lelia. Tom Langdon was one of the Elmira, New York Langdons. To those with a keen knowledge of literary history, the Elmira Langdons brought to mind Olivia Langdon. Olivia, besides having been a lovely, resilient, if ultimately tragic person in her own right, Gained lasting fame by marrying the loquacious orator, irascible personality, and prolific scribe known to his friends as Samuel Clemens, but otherwise known to the world and to history as Mark Twain. Tom had known of this familial connection since he was old enough to block letter his name. It had always inspired him to earn his living with words. For Twain had also been a journalist, starting at the Territorial Enterprise in Virginia City, Nevada, before going on to fame, fortune, bankruptcy, and then fame and fortune again. Tom, for his part, had been imprisoned twice by terrorist groups and very nearly killed half a dozen times, covering a variety of wars, skirmishes, coups, and revolutions that civilized societies used to settle their differences. He'd seen hope replaced with terror, terror replaced with anger, anger replaced with, well, nothing, for the anger always seemed to stick around and make trouble for everybody. Though he'd won major awards, he believed he wasn't a writer with the ability to create memorable prose that would stand tall and strong over the eons. Not like Mark Twain. Yet to have even a marginal connection to the creator of Huckleberry Finn, Life on the Mississippi, And the man who corrupted Hadleyburg, a man whose work was timeless, made Tom feel wonderfully, if vicariously, special. Shortly before he died, Tom's father had asked his son to finish something that, according to legend, Twain never had. As his father told it, Mark Twain, who probably traveled more than any man of his time, had taken a transcontinental railroad trip over the Christmas season during the latter part of his life, his so-called dark years. Apparently, he'd wanted to see some good in the world amid all the tragedy he and his family had suffered. He'd supposedly taken extensive notes about the trip, but for some reason had never distilled them into a story. That's what Tom's father had asked him to do. Take the train ride, write the story, finish what Twain never had, and do the Langdon side of the family proud. At the time, Tom had just finished a frantic 20-hour plane odyssey from overseas to see his dad before he passed. When Tom heard his mumbled request, he was struck dumb. Travel across the country on a train during Christmas to finish something Mark Twain allegedly hadn't? He had thought his father delirious with his final suffering, and so his dad's wish went unfulfilled. Yet now, because he could no longer fly in the lower forty-eight unless he was fingerprinted and shackled, he was finally going to take that trip for his old man, and maybe for himself, too. Over almost 3,000 miles of America, he was going to see if he could find himself. He was doing it during the Christmas season because that was supposed to be a time of renewal, and for him, perhaps, a last chance to clean up whatever mess he'd made of himself. At least he was going to try. However... Had he known what life-altering event would happen to him barely two hours after he boarded the train, he might have opted to walk to California instead.